This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can get new episodes into your podcast feed every Thursday, so make sure you tap or click subscribe. And you can let us know how we're doing with a rating and a review. Now, today we're in the 1200s during the turbulent reign of King John, and the story we're about to uncover is that of rebellion, of war with France, of two great sieges at Dover Castle, and of King John's eventual demise. Joining me to unpick the complex plot is senior properties historian Paul Patterson. Hello, Charles. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us again, Paul. We're going to talk about the Barons' War and the great sieges of Dover Castle. But before we get into that, let's set this tumult in context. How did the terrible King John come to the throne? And what was the situation he inherited at the time? Well, John was the youngest son of Henry II. And he came to the throne on the death of his elder brother, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart. It wasn't exactly a straightforward succession because there was a rival claimant who was Arthur of Brittany, who was the son of Geoffrey, another of John's brothers. And so the two rival claimants almost came to war, but eventually ended it through negotiation with certain concessions on either side. So it wasn't a straightforward succession at all. But anyway, when, when he did come to the throne and was you know, acknowledged as king, he inherited the throne of England and extensive lands in what is now Western France, which his father, Henry II, had won or inherited, and that included Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine. So he's king of England, and he's also overlord of this extensive tract of territory in what is now Western France. Okay, and when did King John exactly come to the throne? What, what year? 1199, right at the end of the 12th century. And I've hinted that he was a bit of a terrible king. Could you describe him in some further adjectives? <laughs> I'll try to be polite. Yeah, the judgment of history and, and even of, you know, considered modern history, if you like, is that he was a poor king. Medieval kings had to be seen as the prominent people among equals, you know, their barons, their peers. They had to be warriors. They had to be firm rulers ruthless even on occasions. They had to be generous to those that supported them. They had to reward them with land and castles and positions. And they also had to be a patron of the church because the church at this time was a powerful institution which was still ruled over by the Pope in Rome. They also had to be diplomatic and skilled at negotiation and prepared to make concessions on occasions. Unfortunately, John had very few of these qualities in any sort of adequate measure. And he basically tried to play everything to his own personal advantage at one time or another. And this tended to alienate and anger even the closest of his supporters, you know, right down from the Pope to the barons that uh, were in the country. So he just wasn't very good at it, effectively. I mean, there were difficult times and loyalties you know, among the elite came and went for personal advantage and you had to know how to play it and he didn't play it very well. 
Let's get into that relationship that he did have with his barons, because I think that is the one that really stands out in the story. His reign was characterised as a fragile relationship with those barons. But what did he do to anger them? Okay, well, I've I've already intimated how he lacked the skills necessary to manage tricky individuals. But he compounded that by a number of things. He was notoriously poor at warfare. He presided over catastrophic military failures, the loss of Normandy, Brittany and Anjou. You know, his inheritance from, from his father was lost in warfare with Philip II of France. That resulted in the loss of baronial property in what is now France, for instance. So that puts pressure on him. He imposed excessive taxation on them to finance these wars and other things. He used foreign officials at times and men of lower rank to collect these taxes, which was grossly offensive to those of the baronial class. He got into conflict with the church over the respective rights of who was going to appoint senior churchmen. This actually led to him being excommunicated by the Pope. In fact, the whole country was placed under what they call an interdict, which meant the basic functions of church services and burials were suspended And that lasted for about six years. So all these things added up to making him very unpopular. He also had some personal traits, which several of the medieval chroniclers allude to. And so many of them do so that it's hard not to believe them. He was regarded, for instance, as a sexual predator and with some quite senior people who were close to him, you know, including the daughters and wives of some of his senior barons. And so all of this stuff coalesced into a disastrous relationship with quite a substantial number of the baronial rulers in the country. Mm. I can hear the exasperation in your voice, almost almost echoing through the centuries. And obviously that would have been felt a thousandfold by the barons who he would have supposedly had relations with. The fact that he was muscling in on other people's women was also potentially very offensive total abuse of power by the sounds of things. So how did the barons attempt to sort of limit the power of the king and cut him down a peg or two? Okay, well, um, there are in fact conspiracies in 1213. There's a plot to get rid of him, to kill him. But that is discovered and foiled. And very shortly afterwards, John embarks on a campaign in France in 1213 and 1214 to try and recover those lands that he lost about 10 years earlier. He taxes the barons excessively in order to finance that. Anyway, it ends in a failure and he comes back to England in October 1214. And at this point, the barons have had enough and they present him with something called the Charter of Liberties, which was, it was a series of clauses which were initially drawn up for the coronation of Henry I earlier in the 12th century. And at that time, presented to the king and agreed to. So... It was agreement about levels of taxation, about who had the right to appoint officials, about not indulging in uh, selling appointments to individuals, all this kind of thing, which can be summed up as the hereditary rights of the barons in their relationship to the king. John, of course, doesn't like this. He sees it as an attempt to control his power, which in effect it was. And... Am I right in saying that is that kind of like a precursor, an early form of what was later to come, which was the Magna Carta, the, yes, the Great indeed. Charter? Indeed, yeah. From this initial presentation in October 1214, 
John holds a series of meetings reluctantly and he plays a delaying game as well. He doesn't want to talk about this, but you know he's not in a great position and eventually he has to. And so it comes to a head when he meets the barons and they present another document, which is an enhancement of the Charter of Liberties, and they call it the Articles of the Barons. And this is at Runnymede in June 1215. It's an expanded version of the earlier Charter of Liberties, and it's a, a pretty comprehensive list of the things that they wanted him to sign up to in their relationship with him. And this is Magna Carta version 1, is that right? Yes, yes. It, it, at that time it was called the Articles of the Barons, and it, it is first called Magna Carta about two years later. But yes, it's effectively Magna Carta. OK. And am I right in saying that he does sign it, but his uh, quill is hovering over the page, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, that, that's in fact what happened. But I think he was of bad faith. He, he, he had no intention of honouring it. And in fact, some warfare had already begun by that time, a month earlier. I suppose he was under duress, as were they, because the barons were laying siege to some of his castles at the time. And he was in the process of sending royal officials to confiscate baronial lands. So the context of the meeting in June at Runnymede is soured already. And it, they're almost, well, certainly John is almost going through the motions. And I don't think he had any intention of honouring. And I think they knew it. I'm getting the sense then that King John was very much on the back foot in this context. There was a lot of violence going on and he had to sign this to kind of placate them, really. Does that sound about right? Uh, about right. I'm not sure whether he was on the back foot, but he, was in a, he wasn't in a great position. But neither were they, really. I mean, fighting had already begun, but, you know, I don't think anybody wanted full-scale warfare. So it was a kind of a double game they were playing. But in the end, both parties recognised that no compromise was possible, I think. Mm. Uh, and, and that's why... It wasn't honoured. And as, as soon as it had been signed, the game was up, really. Warfare continued. Right. So the peace was very kind of brief, really. Indeed, yeah. And how long then did war continue? Well, eventually it goes on all the way through to about August 1217. So, you know, from effectively begins in May 1215 and carries on till August 1217, so over two years. And this, I think, is where things get a little bit more interesting and a bit more complex. I understand that France, or at least French lands and French influence, political influence, starts to come to the fore. Tell us who's involved next. Yes, that, that's true. And in fact, the earlier conspiracy that I talked about in 1213 to get rid of John had involved Philip Augustus, the King of France. Uh, and so there was history there. And so immediately after uh, the Runnymede agreement is not honoured, the barons appeal to Philip Augustus and his son, Louis, the Dauphin, for assistance. Mm -hmm. And they are, well, Philip Augustus is pretty reluctant to get involved at this stage, but his son is more willing. And I think Philip Augustus turns a blind eye to what his son's doing. What it results is that there is a promise of military aid from France in, in aid of the barons. And this is where France sees its opportunity. Absolutely. I think there's a chance that they think they can take the crown of England, and that's exactly exactly the game. And the English barons, or at least the English barons who were on the, on the side of the limiting the power of the king, they were willing to go through with that. There were, however, some loyal ones too. It wasn't all one-sided. What year are we in now when the French um, right. start to land in England? So, 
so the, the, the fighting starts in, in earnest after the meeting at Runnymede in May, and it goes all through the autumn of 1215. One of the big events is the Siege of Rochester, which ends in October. And then John embarks upon a campaign in the north and East Anglia, where what we can call the rebel barons for now are concentrated, where their lands are. And his, his strategy is to devastate their lands and their castles and limit their ability to wage war upon him. Mm. That goes on all through the winter of 1215 to 1216. And it's not until May 1216 that Louis lands with a French army at Sandwich in Kent to help the barons. And then they spread westwards, do they? Yes. What happens is that John initially goes to meet them and to fight them at Sandwich, but he takes flight probably because he saw the size of the forces that were arrayed against him. And effectively, his opposition more or less collapses and he flees across southern England, initially to Winchester and then to the castle at Corf. Meanwhile, Louis is taken in triumph, entering London on June the 2nd and he's pronounced king. He's not crowned, but he's actually pronounced king by the barons. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're a normal person on the streets at that point, you think it's all over for King John. Yes, almost certainly, yeah. So but, uh, how does John regroup and, w- and well, come in, back it, into it, the fight? Initially, he doesn't. There's this flight, as I mentioned, across southern England, further to the west. Louis, after being in London, then goes after him, but abandons the chase, and then instead goes back towards London and the southeast and begins two big sieges of the two important royal castles at Windsor uh, and Dover. So at this stage, John himself is nowhere to be seen while these two big sieges begin. And where is John? Is he hiding? or he, He's a corf for quite some time. In Dorset? Yes, corf in Dorset, yeah. And then he goes north through the western counties, through Gloucester and Bristol and Worcester and Hereford, gathering support. That's what he does in, ah. in the first instance. Meanwhile, the royal castles around England are fighting their own little sieges with the forces of the barons and Louis, so the war continues. Okay, let's talk about this um, situation then towards Dover. Yeah. So where is, well, where is the pseudo-King Louis at this point? Is he involved in the fight personally? He is involved in the fight, yes. After initially chasing John into the West Country, across the south of England, he then returns towards London. And then, having begun the siege of Windsor, he comes to the southeast and begins the siege of Dover in July 1216. Dover's important because it guarantees his communications with France mm. uh, and reinforcements and supplies and all the rest of it. So it's pretty important to take Dover Castle. But Dover Castle is a mighty fortress, isn't it? Can you describe what it would have looked like at this point? Will it be similar to what we see today? Not dissimilar. It wasn't as complete as it is. It was completed in the following reign. But what had happened is during the reign of his father, Henry II, the castle had been very drastically rebuilt. So the great keep, the great tower that's still there today, was built in the 1180s, along with the inner bailey and its strong ring of encircling walls and towers. And a start had been made on the outer bailey as well. Part of that was built in stone, but part of it was probably still in earth and timber form. But by any standard, it was still a very formidable obstacle to take. 
What did the French and I presume the defecting barons try to do to get into the castle? Well, any medieval siege was a combination of trying to persuade those inside to give up. And if that didn't happen, then obviously to break in. And that's what they did. So Dover Castle is in a pretty strong position. If you think of it as a a big triangle on a very tall hill, the base of the triangle is the white cliffs, which are unscalable. And the other two sides of the triangle are very steep until you get to the northern end where there's a narrow neck of land which connects to higher ground beyond. And that's the vulnerable part of the castle. And that's where the French concentrated their attack. It's called the spur. And so what they do is that they concentrate siege engines, you know, stone throwing engines and arrow throwing engines uh, in that location. And they start to bombard the outer defences, the Barbican, which is an earthwork. Right. And so they also build uh, things like siege towers. We know that and they employ miners to start to undermine the Barbican. And that's in fact what happens. They break into the Barbican by undermining it and then proceed to try and get into the main part of the castle through the main north gate. Miners are set to work again and one of the towers of the north gate is collapsed by their their activities and the French actually break into the inner bailey of the castle. But by a pretty stout and heroic defence, the defenders who were led by someone called Hubert de Burr, succeed in pushing the French out and making the breach good. It's quite an epic tale. You know, it's a, it's a real classic tale of medieval siege warfare. How long Go- did this take up until punching through? We don't know for sure. The accounts that we have are brief. They do give us some detail, but they're brief. The whole siege lasts from July 1216 through to October 1216, so it's quite a long time. But you probably remember that a substantial chunk of that time is spent in negotiation and parley and trying to starve them out rather than continuous fighting. So the actual periods of continuous fighting are probably short and sharp, lasting several days each, perhaps. The people in the castle, Dover Castle, have held their ground and they've managed to sort of plug that hole. But I understand there will be a second siege of Dover Castle at some point in the future. So how does this first siege end? It ends in a truce. Winter's coming on. I suspect that the French forces don't want to sit outside through the whole winter. And so a truce is made. But obviously the the fighting elsewhere goes on. So the war isn't over. It's just that this one siege, there's a truce. And meanwhile, John had kind of entered the fray again. And he'd moved from the West Country back into East Anglia and had started attacking the castles and lands of the rebel barons there again. So... This is end of 1216, Mm -hmm. towards the end of 1216, September, October, where John is campaigning in East Anglia. In effect, I think what we have in the the whole warfare is a stalemate because it actually needs one side or other to have a decisive victory and there hasn't really been one. King John doesn't die by the sword, as I understand it. Um, Yeah. How does he meet his end? Well... Whether you can describe it as ordinary or not, but it's certainly of natural causes, definitely. He must be pretty exhausted. I mean, he's been flying over the country at at an incredible rate from place to place. It was a punishing schedule. We think he dies of dysentery at Newark in 18th of October, 1216. So it's a pretty horrible way to go, but he does go out of natural causes rather in battle. And this introduces, in effect, a total stalemate because 
if you think about it, there is far less reason for the barons now to be at war and actually siding with what was effectively a foreign power in a civil war when the main perpetrator of the causes of the war is dead. Yes. What happens now is that there is a true stalemate and some barons begin to come back to the side of the English crown. And this is compounded by the fact that John's young nine-year-old son is crowned in Gloucester Cathedral as King Henry III ten days later on the 28th of October. 1216, he is crowned. And William Marshall, the great medieval knight, becomes his regent. And the complexion of the conflict starts to change. And, you know, the, the momentum starts to swing gently the other way. But the French haven't gone back to France, have they? No, they haven't. And so, is this when they launch a second attempt on Dover Castle? Yes, we get into 1217. So, you know, the fighting does continue on and off throughout the winter of 1216 into 1217. And then Louis is fighting in several places, including in the north of England and in the south of England. Dover was critical again because he does need reinforcements. He needs more soldiers uh, and he needs more supplies. And so he comes south again to Dover and begins a second siege. And Dover being in the key position to dominate those communications, he begins a second siege of the castle in May 1217. How long did that siege take? That went on until August 1217, uh, round about the 24th. It's another big affair, and we know from contemporary accounts that this time he attacks the same area because it's the only one possible to attack, and he surrounds the northern end of the castle, the north gate and the spur, with a series of what are called fortresses, and I, these are probably like 45 platforms with siege engines on them, and these siege engines begin slinging great stones at the castle walls in another attempt to break in. And they include an engine called a trebuchet that you might have heard of, which is a massive, great stone-throwing engine. And it has the great name of the Malvoisin, or the bad neighbour. And so for quite a few weeks, these engines are bombarding the castle, attempting to break away in. But again, it's not successful, and the, the garrison hauled out. At this point, did the French turn heel and go back to France? Do they realise they've lost at this point? No, they don't. There are two things that happened. Slightly earlier than the conclusion of the siege at Dover, they had suffered a defeat at Lincoln, again in May 1217, at the hands of William Marshall, Henry III's regent. So that's one big defeat in the north. And then in August, on the 24th of August 1217, towards the end of the Dover siege, there's an attempt to reinforce Louis' forces by a fleet with soldiers and equipment coming from France. Hubert de Burr, who is the guy who is defending Dover Castle, goes out with another fleet and meets the French fleet off the coast at Sandwich. And the French are defeated in a huge sea battle, which effectively means that the war cannot be carried on by Louis and his French soldiers. And so that's the event, this battle at Sandwich, that finally decides the outcome of the war. But who is leading the French fleet? It's quite an unusual character who leads the French fleet. He's, he was known as Eustace the Monk. He was actually a Frenchman and at some point clearly had been in monastic orders. But I think early on in life he turned to another occupation, which was piracy. 
and he'd established himself as a very successful pirate or privateer in the English Channel, operating out of a base in Sark in the Channel Islands. And he'd actually been on the English side for quite a long time. But during this conflict, I guess because he thought his purposes would be better served on the French side, he offered his services to the French again and so led the French fleet. He's captured aboard one of the ships and rough justice is very quickly meted out to him by the English. And uh, they basically put his head on the rail of a ship and cut it off immediately. So treacherous his behaviour was considered to be. Interesting as well that uh, naval supremacy wins out and that becomes a hallmark, I think, of the people who live in the British Isles, don't they, as history wears on. Yes, that, that's very, very true. And, you know, we underestimate the power of sea power at this time. I mean, kings generally didn't keep fleets in the sense of a royal navy that emerged later. But what they did do in times of war is they would commission merchant shipping because merchant ships were effectively used as warships. So this was a makeshift fleet. And sea battles were fought like land battles. Ships came together soldiers jumped onto the other ship and fought it out hand to hand. And that's exactly what happened in this instance. What a fascinating and tumultuous sort of few years in southern England at that point. Goodness, yes, absolutely. Over two years of fairly continuous warfare, it's typified by castle sieges going on all over England. Because that's how the country was held and how it was dominated by garrisons in castles. And so it was important for one side or other, to keep taking these castles. There are very few pitched battles. Most of them are, are sieges. The young Henry III then goes on to rule England. Does he have a long life and a long reign? He does, yeah. Initially, he, he is under a regent because he's not of age, but eventually he does come of age and he rules until 1272. So it's enormously long reign. And that includes, incidentally, a second civil war in the 1260s, the Second Barons' War, but that's another story. But yes, he has a long reign, indeed. I'm dying to know now whether he was like his father, King John. No, not at all. He was, he was uh, <laughs> much more accomplished. He did get people on his side. He was uh, a very vigorous ruler. He did lots of good things. So he was nothing like his father. When we consider all of those complex series of events, interference from France and, you know, rebelling barons, how crucial was Dover Castle as that important fortress in, in, in the corner of, the, of southeast England, that, that key to England in a way? Well, exactly. The key to England, which was a phrase that was coined not long afterwards, actually. And it, it was in reference to this series of events. So it was a very important fortress and its secret lay in the fact that it dominates the shortest crossing of the channel from one side to the other. And so in medieval terms, wars could only be fought if you had and maintained sufficient lines of communication, sufficient forces and sufficient supplies. And Dover Castle was one of those places which you know, held the key to a successful campaign. And so the failure to take it did influence the course of the war, there's no doubt about that. And of course it went on to have its uh, own very storied history throughout the centuries. Going back to the sieges at Dover Castle though, is there still any evidence, both physical and in paper form, documentary, of the attacks on the spur, that sort of Achilles heel? Well, we, we know about the sieges through documentary evidence and a lot of it is contemporary, which is really unusual. So there are three or four individual chronicles or histories written 
in some cases by monks and in other cases by people in civil life, that document what happened. In particular, there's one called The History of the Dukes of Normandy and the Kings of England, which we think is written by someone who took part in the conflict. We don't know if they were at Dover, but they certainly took part in the conflict. And our description of the events of the, certainly the first siege in some detail, and then the second detail, uh, sorry, the second siege in, in rather less detail, come from that document. But then there are monastic chroniclers, one called Roger of Wendover and another called Matthew Paris, who are also contemporaries, and they also describe the series of events which we now call the First Barons' War. So the documentary evidence is good. You, you have to take some of it with a pinch of salt because each of them comes with their own biases. But underneath that, you can detect the thread of the story quite well. So we're very well served in terms of documentary evidence. In terms of physical evidence, what you can see today, a lot of what we call the spur where the sieges took place has been radically reshaped because, as you alluded to, Dover has been occupied and, and played a significant part in many, many subsequent conflicts. So some of the evidence has gone. But we know that the castle was reconstructed very shortly after the siege, again by Hubert de Burr, and the things that you can see at the north end of the castle today very much relate to what he did after the siege. But there are a few exceptions, and principally there is a series of tunnels which are in such a position underneath the castle wall as to indicate that they are either siege tunnels or more likely counter-siege tunnels from the time of 1216-1217. They're positioned just in front of, but more or less underneath, the foundations of the inner Bailey wall. And our reading of that evidence is that these are the tunnels which were occupied by the defenders so that the incoming tunnels of the French miners would be detected before they became a danger to undermine the castle. And they are still there today. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's great. And it's a great tactic from the defenders to sort of be able to perhaps mine out and then attack from behind. Indeed. In fact, the gateway, the northern gateway, which was undermined by the French miners, is also still there. But what happened in the reconstruction by Hubert de Burr afterwards is that the gateway was blocked up and towers, further towers, added to each side of the original gate. So when you look at that north wall today, you see this, this line of five towers, and two of them are in fact the original towers flanking the gateway that was undermined. So that physical evidence is still there, and probably deeper underground, you know, there's something, something left of the evidence of the siege. When we sort of zoom out in history and look at the various important things that have happened to Dover Castle. How would you sort of rank the great sieges of Dover Castle in English history? How would I rank them? Boy, that is a question. (laughs) It's difficult, isn't it? Because our history is very much a history of continuous conflict. But it was a pretty significant moment because it's kind of the great forgotten invasion, isn't it? I mean, we often think of 1066 as the, the last major invasion of our country, but This was very much an invasion, wasn't it? I mean, there was a a French prince running amok on English soil for well over a year. And so the conclusion of that conflict and Dover's part in it has got to be fairly important, I think. I don't know how I'd rank it, but it's very important. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. 
For more about the history of Dover Castle, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we discover the six English Heritage sites connected to Richard, Earl of Cornwall. He's a talented diplomat and schemer, and he is immensely glamorous. He knew the importance of display as a way of affirming his power. Thanks for listening. See you next time.